The Mechanism of Detection Related by Christopher Jervis, M.D. The singular circumstances that attended the death of Mr. Oscar Brodsky, the well-known diamond merchant of Hatton Garden, illustrated very forcibly the importance of one or two points in medico-legal practice which Thorndyke was accustomed to insist were not sufficiently appreciated. What those points were, I shall leave my friend and teacher to state the proper place, and meanwhile, as the case is in the highest degree instructive, I shall record the instance in the order of their occurrence. The dusk of an October evening was closing in as Thorndyke and I, the sole occupants of a smoking compartment, found ourselves approaching the little station of Ludham, and as the train slowed down, we peered out at the knot of country people who were waiting on the platform. Suddenly Thorndyke exclaimed in a tone of surprise, "'Why, that is surely Boscovich!' and almost at the same moment a brisk, excitable little man darted at the door of our compartment and literally tumbled in. "'I hope I don't intrude on this learned conclave,' he said, shaking hands genially and banging his gladstone with impulsive violence into the rack. "'But I saw your faces at the window and naturally jumped at the chance of such pleasant companionship.' "'You're very flattering,' said Thorndyke. "'So flattering that you leave us nothing to say. But what in the name of fortune are you doing at? What's the name of this place? Ludham?' My brother has a little place a mile or so from here, and I've been spending a couple of days with him, Mr. Boscovich explained. I shall change at Badgham Junction and catch the boat train to Amsterdam. But whither are you two bound? I see you have your mysterious little green box up on the outrack, so I infer that you are on some romantic quest, eh? Going to unravel some dark and intricate crime? No, replied Thorndyke. We're bound for Warmington on a quite prosaic errand. I'm instructed to watch the proceedings at an inquest there to-morrow, on behalf of the Griffin Line Insurance Office, and we are travelling down to-night, as it is rather a cross-country journey. Why the box of magic? asked Boscovich, glancing up at the hat-rack. I never go away from home without it, answered Thorndyke. One never knows what may turn up. The trouble of carrying it is small when set off against the comfort of having appliances at hand in an emergency. Boscovich continued to stare up at the little square case, covered with Wilsden canvas. Presently he remarked, I often used to wonder what you had in it when you were down at Chelmsford in connection with that bank murder. What an amazing case that was, by the way. Didn't your methods of research astonish the police? As he still looked up wistfully at the case, Thorndyke good-naturedly lifted it down and unlocked it. As a matter of fact, he was rather proud of his portable laboratory, and suddenly it was a triumph of condensation, for as small as it was, only a foot square by four inches deep, it contained a fairly complete outfit for a preliminary investigation. Wonderful! exclaimed Boscovich, when the case lay open before him, displaying its rows of little regent bottles, tiny test-tubes, diminutive spirit-lamp, dwarf microscope, and assorted instruments on the same Lilliputian scale. It's like a doll's house. Everything looks as if it was seen through the wrong end of a telescope. But are these tiny things really efficient? That microscope, now. Perfectly efficient at low and moderate magnifications, said Thorndyke. It looks like a toy, but it isn't one. The lenses are the best that can be had. Of course, a full-size instrument would be infinitely more convenient, but I shouldn't have it with me. I should have to make shift with a pocket lens, and so with the rest of the undersized appliances, they are the alternative to no appliances. Boscovich poured over the case and its contents, fingering the instrument delicately, and asking questions innumerable about their uses. Indeed, his curiosity was but half appeased when half an hour later the train began to slow down. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed, starting up and seizing his bag. "'Here we are at the junction already. You change here, don't you?' "'Yes,' replied Thorndyke. "'We take the branch train on to Warmington.' As we stepped out onto the platform, we became aware that something unusual was happening, or had happened. All the passengers and most of the porters and supernumeraries were gathered at one end of the station, 
and all were looking intently into the darkness down the line. "'Anything wrong?' asked Mr. Boscovich, addressing the station inspector. "'Yes, sir,' the official replied. "'A man has been run over by the goods train about a mile down the line. Station master has gone down with a stretcher to help him bring him in. And I expect that is his lantern that you see coming this way.' As we stood watching the dancing light grow momentarily brighter, flashing fitful reflections from the burnished rails, a man came out of the booking office and joined the group of onlookers. He attracted my attention, as I afterwards remembered, for two reasons. In the first place his round jolly face was excessively pale, and bore a strained and wild expression, and in the second, though he stared into the darkness with eager curiosity, he asked no questions. The swinging lantern continued to approach, and then suddenly two men came into sight bearing a stretcher, covered with a tarpaulin, through which the shape of a human figure was dimly discernible. They ascended the slope to the platform, and proceeded with their burden to the lamp-room, when the inquisitive gaze of the passengers was transferred to a porter, who followed, carrying a handbag, an umbrella, and to the station-master, who brought up the rear with his lantern. As the porter passed, Mr. Boscovich started forward with sudden excitement. "'Is that his umbrella?' he asked. "'You yes, sure?' answered the porter, stopping and holding out for the speaker's inspection. "'My God!' ejaculated Boscovich. Then, turning sharply to Thorndyke, he explained, "'That's Brodsky's umbrella. I could swear it. You remember Brodsky?' Thorndyke nodded, and Boscovich, turning once more to the porter, said, "'I identify that umbrella. It belongs to a gentleman named Brodsky. If you look at his hat, you will see his name written in it. He always writes his name in his hat.' "'We haven't found his hat yet,' said the porter. "'But here's the station master. He turned to his superior and announced, "'This gentleman, sir, has identified the umbrella.' "'Oh,' said the station master. You recognise the umbrella, do you? Then perhaps you would step into the lamp room and see if you can identify the body. Mr. Boscovich recoiled with a look of alarm. Is it... is he very much injured? he asked nervously. Why, well, yes, was the reply. You see, the engine and six of the trucks went over him before they could stop the train. Took his head clean off, in fact. Shocking, shocking, gasped Boscovich. I think if you don't mind, I'd, I'd, I'd rather not. You don't think it necessary, Doctor, do you? Yes, I do, replied Thorndyke. Early identification may be of the first importance. And I suppose I must, said Boscovich, and with extreme reluctance he followed the stationmaster to the lamp-room, as the loud ringing of the bell announced the approach of the boat-train. His inspection must have been of the briefest, for in a few moments he burst out, pale and awe-stricken, and rushed up to Thorndyke. It is, he exclaimed breathlessly. It's Brodsky! Poor old Brodsky! Horrible! Horrible! I was to have met him and come with me to Amsterdam. Had he any merchandise about him? Thorndyke asked, and as he spoke, the stranger whom I had previously noticed edged up closer as if to catch the reply. He had some stones, no doubt, answered Boscovich. I don't know what they were. His clerk will know, of course. By the way, Doctor, could you watch the case for me, just to be sure it really was an accident, or, you know what? We're old friends, you know, fellow townsmen too. We were both born in Warsaw. I'd like you to give an eye to the case. Very well, said Thorndyke. I will satisfy myself that there is nothing more than appears, and let you have a report. Will that do? Thank you, said Boscovich. It's excessively good of you, Doctor. Oh, here comes the train. I hope it won't inconvenience you to stay and see to the matter. Not in the least, replied Thorndyke. We are not due at Warmington until tomorrow afternoon, and I expect we can find out all that is necessary to know, and still keep our appointment. As Thorndyke spoke, the stranger, who had kept close to us with the evident purpose of hearing what was said, bestowed on him a very curious and attentive look, and it was only when the train had actually come to rest by the platform that he hurried away to find a compartment 
No sooner had the train left the station than Thorndyke sought out the station-master, and informed him of the instructions that he had received from Boscovich. "'Of course,' he added in conclusion, "'we must not move in the matter until the police arrive. I suppose they have been informed.' "'Yes,' replied the station-master. "'I'll send a message at once to Chief Constable, and I expect him or an inspector at any moment. In fact, I think I'll slip out of the approach and see if he's coming.' He evidently wished to have a word in private with the police officer before committing himself to any statement. As the official departed, Thorndyke and I began to pace the now empty platform, and my friend, as was his wont, when entering on a new inquiry, meditatively reviewed the features of the problem. In a case of this kind, he remarked, we have to decide on one of three possible explanations, accident, suicide, or homicide, and our decision will be determined by inferences from three sets of facts. First, the general facts of the case. Second, the special data obtained by examination of the body, and third, the special data obtained by examining the spot on which the body was found. Now the only general facts at present in our possession are that the deceased was a diamond merchant making a journey for a specific purpose, and probably having on his person property of small bulk and great value. These facts are somewhat against the hypothesis of suicide, and somewhat favourable to that of homicide. Facts relevant to the question of accident would be the existence, or otherwise, of a level crossing, a road or path leading to the line, an enclosing fence, with or without a gate, and any other facts rendering probable or otherwise the accidental presence of the deceased at the spot where the body was found. As we do not possess these facts, it is desirable that we extend our knowledge. Why not put a few discreet questions to the porter who brought in the bag and umbrella, I suggested. He is at this moment in earnest conversation with the ticket collector, and would no doubt be glad of a new listener. An excellent suggestion, Jervis, answered Thorndyke. Let us see what he has to tell us. We approached the porter and found him, as I had anticipated, bursting to unburden himself of the tragic story. The way the thing happened, sir, was this, he said in answer to Thorndyke's question. There was a sharpish bend in the road, just at that place, and the goods train was just rounding the curve, when the driver suddenly caught sight of something lying across the rails. As the engine turned, the headlight shone on it, and then he saw it was a man. He shut off steam at once, blew his whistle, put the brakes down hard, but as you know, sir, a goods train takes some stopping before they could bring her up. The engine and half a dozen trucks had gone over the poor beggar. Could the driver see how the man was lying? Thorndyke asked. Yes, he could see him quite plain, because the headlights were full on him. He was lying on his face with his neck over the near rail on the down side. His head was in the forefoot and his body by the side of the track. It looked as if he had laid himself out of purpose. Is there a level crossing thereabouts? asked Thorndyke. No, sir, no crossing, no road, no path, no nothing, said the porter, ruthlessly sacrificing grammar to emphasis. He must have come across the fields and climbed over the fence to get into the permanent way. Deliberate suicide is what it looks like. How did you learn all this? Thorndyke inquired. Why, the driver, you see, sir, when him and his mate had lifted the body off the track, went on the next signal box and sent his report by telegram. The station master told me all about it as we walked down the line. Thorndyke thanked the man for his information, and as we strolled back towards the lamp room, discussed the bearing of these new facts. Our friend is unquestionably right in one respect, he said. This was not an accident. The man might, if he were near-sighted, deaf or stupid, have climbed over the fence and got knocked down by the train. But his position, lying across the rails, can only be explained by one of two hypotheses. Either it was, as the porter says, deliberate suicide, or else the man was already dead or insensible. We must leave it at that until we have seen the body, that is, if the police will allow us to see it, but here comes the station-master and an officer with him. Let us hear what they have to say. 
The two officials had evidently made up their minds to decline any outside assistance. The divisional surgeon would make the necessary examination, and information could be obtained through the usual channels. The production of Thorndyke's card, however, somewhat altered the situation. The police inspector hummed and hawed irresolutely with his card in his hand, but finally agreed to allow us to view the body, and we entered the lamp room together, the station master leading the way to turn up the gas. The stretcher stood on the floor by one wall, its grim burden still hidden by the tarpaulin, and the handbag and umbrella lay on a large box, together with the battered frame of a pair of spectacles from which the glasses had fallen out. Were these spectacles found by the body? Thorndyke inquired. Yes, replied the station master. They were close to the head, and the glass was scattered about on the ballast. Thorndyke made a note in his pocket book, and then, as the inspector removed the tarpaulin, he glanced down on the corpse, lying limply on the stretcher, and looking grotesquely horrible, with its displaced head and distorted limbs. For fully a minute he remained silently stooping over the uncanny object on which the inspector was now throwing the light of a large lantern. Then he stood up and said quietly to me, I think we can eliminate two out of the three hypotheses. The inspector looked at him quickly and was about to ask a question when his attention was diverted by the travelling case which Thorndyke had laid on a shelf and now opened to abstract a couple of pairs of dissecting forceps. "'We've no authority to make a post-mortem, you know,' said the inspector. "'No, of course not,' said Thorndyke. "'I'm merely going to look into the mouth.' With one pair of forceps he turned back the lip, and having scrutinised its inner surface, closely examined the teeth. "'May I trouble you for your lens, Jervis?' he said, and as I handed him my doublet ready opened, the inspector brought the lantern close to the dead face and leaned forward eagerly. In his usual systematic fashion, Thorndyke slowly passed the lens along the whole range of sharp, uneven teeth, and then, bringing it back to the centre, examined with more minuteness the upper incisors. At length, very delicately, he picked out with his forceps some minute object from between two of the upper front teeth, and held it in the focus of the lens. Anticipating his next move, I took a labelled microscope slide from the case and handed it to him, together with a dissecting needle and as he transferred the object to the slide and spread it out with a needle, I set up the little microscope on the shelf. A drop of furant and a cover-glass, please, Jervis, said Thorndyke. I handed him the bottle, and when he had let a drop of the mountain fluid fall gently on the object and put on the cover-slip, he placed the slide on the stage of the microscope and examined it attentively. Happening to glance at the inspector, I observed on his countenance a faint grin, which he politely strove to suppress when he caught my eye. I was uh, thinking, sir, he said apologetically, it's a bit of a trap to be finding out what he had for dinner. He didn't die of unwholesome feeding. Thorndyke looked up with a smile. It doesn't do, Inspector, to assume that anything is off the track in an inquiry of this kind. Every fact must have some significance, you know. I don't see any significance in the dart of a man who has had his head calf, the Inspector rejoined defiantly. Don't you, said Thorndyke. Is there no interest attaching to the last meal of a man who has met a violent death? These crumbs, for instance, that are scattered over the dead man's waistcoat, can we learn nothing from them? I don't see what you can learn, was the dogged rejoinder. Thorndyke picked off the crumbs one by one with his forceps, and having deposited them on a slide, inspected them first with the lens, and then through the microscope. I learn, said he, that shortly before his death the deceased partook of some kind of wholemeal biscuits, apparently composed partly of oatmeal. I call that nothing, said the inspector. The question that we have to got to settle is not what refreshments had the deceased been taken, but what was the cause of his death? Did he commit suicide? Or was he killed by accident? Or was there any foul play? I beg your pardon, 
said Thorndyke. The questions that remain to be settled are who killed the deceased and with what motive. The others are already answered, as far as I'm concerned. The inspector stared in sheer amazement, not unmixed with incredulity. You haven't been long coming to a conclusion, sir, he said. No, it's a pretty obvious case of murder, said Thorndyke. As to the motive, the deceased was a diamond merchant, and is believed to have had a quantity of stones about his person. I should suggest that you search the body. The inspector gave vent to an exclamation of disgust. Oh, I see, he said. It was just a guess on your part. The dead man was a diamond merchant and had valuable property about him, therefore he was murdered. He drew himself up and, regarding Thorndyke with a stern reproach, added, But you must understand, sir, that this is a judicial inquiry, not a prize competition in a penny paper. But as to searching the body, that is what I principally came for. He ostentatiously turned his back on us and proceeded systematically to turn out the dead man's pockets, laying the articles as he removed them on the box by the side of the handbag and umbrella. While he was thus occupied, Thorndyke looked over the body generally, paying special attention to the soles of the boots, which, to the inspector's undissembled amusement, he very thoroughly examined with the lens. "'I should have thought, sir, that his feet were large enough to be seen with the naked eye,' was his comment. "'But, perhaps,' he added with a sly glance at the station-master, "'you are a little near-sighted.' Thorndyke chuckled good-humouredly, and while the officer continued his search, he looked over the articles that had already been laid on the box. The purse and pocket-book he naturally left for the inspector to open, but the reading-glasses, pocket-knife and card-case, and other small pocket-articles were subjected to a searching scrutiny. The inspector watched him out of the corner of his eye with furtive amusement, saw him hold up the glasses to the light to estimate their refractive power, peer into the tobacco-pouch, open the cigarette-book, and examine the watermark of the paper and even inspect the contents of the silver match-box. "'What might you have expected to find in his tobacco-pouch?' the officer asked, laying down a bunch of keys from the dead man's pocket. "'Tobacco?' Thorndyke replied stolidly. "'But I did not expect to find fine-cut latakia. I don't remember ever having seen pure latakia smoked in cigarettes.' "'You do take an interest in things, sir,' said the inspector, with a side glance at the stolid station-master. I do, Thorndyke agreed, and I note that there are no diamonds among his collection. No, and we don't know that he had any about him, but there's a gold watch and chain, a diamond scarf pin, and a purse containing, he opened it and tipped out its contents into his hand, twelve pounds in gold. That doesn't much like robbery, does it? What do you say to the murder theory now? My opinion is unchanged, said Thorndyke, and I should like to examine the spot where the body was found. Has the engine been inspected? he added, addressing the station master. I'll telegraph to Bradfield to have it examined the official answered. The report has probably come in by now. I'd better see before we start down the line. We emerged from the lamp room and at the door found the station inspector waiting with a telegram. He handed it to the station master, who read it aloud. The engine has been carefully examined by me. I find small smear of blood on the near leading wheel and a smaller one on next wheel following. No other marks. He glanced questioningly at Thorndyke, who nodded and replied. It'll be interesting to see if the line tells the same tale. The station-master looked puzzled and was apparently about to ask for an explanation, but the inspector, who had carefully pocketed the dead man's property, was impatient to start, and accordingly, when Thorndyke had repackaged his case and had, at his own request, been furnished with a lantern, we set off down the permanent way, Thorndyke carrying the light, and I the indispensable green case. "'I'm a little in the dark about this affair,' I said, when we had allowed the two officials to draw ahead out of earshot. "'You came to a conclusion remarkably quickly.' What was it that so immediately determined the opinion of murder as against suicide? It was a small matter, but very conclusive, replied Thorndyke. You noticed a small scalp wound above the left temple. 
It was a glancing wound and might easily have been made by the engine. But the wound had bled, and it had bled for an appreciable time. There were two streams of blood from it, and in both the blood was firmly clotted and partially dried. But the man had been decapitated, and this wound, if inflicted by the engine, must have been made after the decapitation, since it was not on the side most distant from the engine as it approached. Now a decapitated head does not bleed, therefore this wound was inflicted before the decapitation. But not only had the wound bled, the blood trickled down in two streams at right angles to one another. First, in the order of time as shown by the appearance of the stream, it had trickled down the side of the face and dropped on the collar. The second stream ran from the wound to the back of the head. Now you know, Jervis, there are no exceptions to the law of gravity. If the blood ran down the face towards the chin, the face must have been upright at the time, and if the blood trickled from the front to the back of the head, the head must have been horizontal and face upwards. But the man, when he was seen by the engine driver, was lying face downwards. The only possible inference is that when the wound was inflicted, the man was in the upright position, standing or sitting, and that subsequently, and while he was still alive, he lay on his back for a sufficiently long time for the blood to have trickled to the back of his head. I see. I was a duffer not to have reasoned this out for myself, I remarked contritely. Quick observations and rapid inference come by practice, replied Thorndyke. What did you notice about the face? I thought there were some strong suggestions of asphyxia. Undoubtedly, said Thorndyke. It was the face of a suffocated man. You must have noticed, too, that the tongue was very distinctly swollen, and that on the inside of the upper lip were deep indentations made by the teeth, as well as one or two slight wounds, obviously caused by heavy pressure on the mouth. And now observe how completely these facts and inferences agree with those from the scalp wound. If we knew that the deceased had received a blow on the head, had struggled with his assailant, and had been finally borne down and suffocated, we should look for precisely those signs which we have found. By the way, what was it that you found wedged between the teeth? I did not get a chance to look through the microscope. Ah, said Thorndyke, there we not only get confirmation, but we carry our inferences a stage further. The object was a little tuft of some textile fabric. Under the microscope I found it to consist of several different fibres, differently dyed. The bulk of it consisted of wool fibres dyed crimson, but there were also cotton fibres dyed blue, and a few which looked like jute dyed yellow. It was obviously a partly coloured fabric, and must have been part of a woman's dress, though the presence of the jute is much more suggestive of a curtain or rug of inferior quality. And its importance is that, if it is not part of an article of clothing, then it must have come from an article of furniture, and furniture suggests a habitation. That doesn't seem very conclusive, I objected. It is not, but it is valuable corroboration. Of what? Of the suggestion offered by the soles of the dead man's boots. I examined them most minutely, and could find no trace of sand, gravel, or earth, in spite of the fact that he must have crossed fields and rough land to reach the place where he was found. What I did find was fine tobacco ash, a charred mark as if a cigar or cigarette had been trodden on, several crumbs of biscuit, and on a projecting brad some coloured fibres, apparently from a carpet. The manifest suggestion is that the man was killed in a house with a carpeted floor, and carried from thence to the railway. 